We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I am your host, Harrison Cayley, and joining me is Corey Schink. Nice to be back. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Gordon Hahn. Gordon is an author and analyst who has worked for various DC think tanks over the years, and his website is gordonhahn.com, where he writes about Eurasian geopolitics, Russia, also Ukraine, Syria, U.S. politics, everything that kind of relates to that milieu. He's written three books so far. The first is Russia's Revolution from Above, Reform, Transition, and Revolution in the Fall of the Soviet Communist Regime, followed by Russia's Islamic Threat and the Caucasus Emirate Mujahideen, Global Jihadism in Russia's North Caucasus and Beyond. He has a new book coming out later this year called Ukraine Over the Edge, Russia, the West, and the Making of the Ukrainian Crisis and New Cold War. So, Gordon, um, welcome to the show. To start out with, could you tell us a bit about the three books that you've written, or the four books that you've written, and about your background and how you came to write them? One year in the early 90s, before the Soviet Union collapsed, and so my first book basically grew out of my dissertation, which was a study of Gorbachev's conflict with the Communist Party apparatus as he tried to implement reforms. Uh, so that's, that was revol- Russia's revolution from above, which was published in 2002. Uh, and then I kicked around a few think tanks. I worked at the St. Petersburg State University on a, on a, Fulbright, a Fulbright fellowship for a year. Uh, I came back to the States and decided one of the easiest ways to continue employment in this difficult field was to, because there was, a, you know, it was 2003, 2004, it was relatively shortly after 9-11, and the big topic in the United States was um, uh, jihadism or terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and also right around that time, 2004, there was a major attack in Moscow on the subway. Uh, and I was in Moscow at the time. And so I decided to look into this whole question of uh, whether there were jihadis in the North Caucasus or whether they were actually national freedom fighters mm-hmm. uh, and so forth and so on. And so... Um, out of that grew my book, uh, Russia's Islamic Threat. And then I basically continued on uh, looking at the uh, North Caucasus jihadism and uh, global jihadism, and that led to Caucasus Emirate Mujahideen as the, um, basically as a follow-up of the previous book, um, in which basically all the findings in, in Caucasus Mujahideen um, confirmed that the previous book had been basically correct about predicting that and, and showing that at the time even uh, already the jihadis had sunk their teeth into the Chechen, uh, Chechen Republic of Ichkeri, as it was once called, and about half the movement was already uh, a jihadist or a national separatist. And um, that's basically it. And then I, uh, once the um, Ukraine crisis broke out, uh, one thing that I discovered during when I was working on the two books on um, uh, 
Islamism as Russia's Islamic threat, Pakistan and Mujahideen, is that there was an awful lot of bias and distortion in the Western media about what was going on. A complete failure and even, I would say, deliberate distortion, uh, disinformation, what now everybody calls fake news, <laughs> um, about what was going on in North Caucasus. Mm-hmm. And so that made me just a little suspicious when I was hearing all the news agencies reporting the same version of what was going on in Ukraine without uh, any nuance whatsoever. And I began to, and I was following as it was going on, so I was also seeing some disconnect in, in, in between the facts on the ground at the time and uh, the reporting. And the more I looked into it, um, I realized that there, there's certainly a book here <laughs> and that the version that the, the American people were getting from the mass media was a distortion of the facts uh, about what was going on in Ukraine. And the record needed to be corrected, so I decided to write the book on um, Ukraine. Well, as uh, everybody knows, uh, in St. Petersburg, there were uh, terror attacks a few weeks ago. And like you said, there in the, the Caucasus, there hasn't really been a very objective assessment of what the Russian Islamic threat really looks like. But you really dive into it into your books. So I was wondering, could you explain for us who aren't aware of what Russia's Islamic threat really looks like, uh, why it is that you predicted this rise in Islamic extremism in Russia? Well, it goes back, uh, basically we need to go back to the mid-90s and then look at the history. So initially, it was, it's true that the uh, initial um, movement, uh, uh, the formation of the Chechen Republic to carry as the Soviet Union was falling apart, was a national separatist movement. It was inspired by, uh, well, many things, the, the long history of um, North Caucasus' resistance to Russian rule, dating back to the original conquest by the Russians, the fact that there had been national movements in the in the Union republics, that is, you know, in places like uh, the Baltics and Georgia, somewhat less strong in Ukraine and other places. Um, and so um, initially it was a national separatist movement. It was not a democratic movement. So there's one particular author who covers the North Caucasus who at one point wrote that um, uh, something along the lines of uh, he's, he's seen... Um, Quite often, North Caucasus uh, militants uh, writing about uh, George Washington. The George Washington is mentioned more in their literature than Osama bin Laden. <laughs> I don't know what literature he's reading from the Caucasus Mujahideen or the Chechen Republic of Syria, but I've never seen George Washington's name mentioned once. And my guess is, if he was mentioned, he wouldn't have been mentioned in a very positive light. <laughs> so, uh, whereas I've seen lots of stuff from bin Laden and all the other jihadists on their website. Um, so anyway. By 1997, a guy by the name of Hatab, who was a close associate of bin Laden, for example, when he was killed, when Hatab was killed, uh, bin Laden wrote a eulogy for him. He came to the North Caucasus, and he became friendly with uh, uh, Shamil Basayev. By the way, Basayev had been in Afghanistan to the uh, Al-Qaeda training camps in 1994, uh, but his uh, whole uh, conglomerate of about 30 or 40 Mujahideen who had been actually fighting on the side of the uh, ethnic Abkhaz in their battle to separate from Georgia at the time. And they actually had received, uh, at least Basayev allegedly had received some training from the, from the Russian GRU. That doesn't make him an agent of the Russian security forces by any means. He then went to Afghanistan as he trained. They all got sick on something and they left. So they never actually received any training as far as uh, 
people can tell, but this shows a desire to become part of the jihad. Anyway, um, by 1997, uh, Bahasaev and Hatab began to set up camps, training camps, not just for the jihad in uh, Russia, uh, but for training camps, uh, for tra training jihadists which carry out attacks in the West and other places. Um, there's a, I cited a whole bunch of, um, in the second book, Caucasus, second book on uh, Islamism, the Caucasus and Mujahideen, court cases from, from the United States in which uh, it's documented uh, in the uh, brief um, when they closed down certain um, benevolent foundations that were supporting jihad around the world that were based in the United States, that a large chunk of the money they were raising was going to the Chechen uh, Republic of Echkaria, the so-called National Separatist Movement. And the rest of it was going to Afghanistan. So that shows that the Chechen Republic of Echkaria was, was, was a had a high priority among global jihadists at the time. Anyway, they began to gradually, uh, this is, by the way, 1997 now, we're already getting into the interwar period. So the first Chechen war has ended. And in the interwar period in Chechnya, there was absolute chaos. Uh, people were kidnapping people for ransom, and it was just absolute chaos. Uh, there was a struggle for power within the Chechen Republic of Chikaria. There were various groupings. One of the groupings was the jihadist group of uh, Basayev and Hatab. So by 1998, they began to, um, they had built up, uh, you know, a certain critical mass of uh, jihadi fighters, maybe a thousand or so who were willing to fight under the wing of, of Asayev and Hatab, and they decided to, they first they, they created a Congress of the Dagestani and Chechen peoples, which was an indication that they were planning, planning to spread the jihad to the Republic of Dagestan, which is next to Chechnya, and is the most important republic in the North Caucasus by sheer numbers and by the legacy of Islam. It goes back much uh, longer in Dagestan than it does in Chechnya and other places in North Caucasus. So in, um, uh, to get to move along a little quicker, by 1999, by July 1999, these forces, you can actually find the video on the internet of about 1,000 to 2,000 fighters crossing the border in, from Chechnya into Dagestan, and the Russians eventually battled, uh, rallied the Dagestani peoples. Many of the Dagestani nationalities don't particularly like Chechens, uh, and they don't particularly, uh, at the time, they weren't particularly receptive to Islamism or jihadism. And they managed to fight back uh, this invasion. It was shortly on the, on the, about a month later, that we had those so-called apartment bombings in uh, Moscow and Rostov Nadanu. And often that is portrayed as some kind of a plot involving Putin to get Garner um, uh, additional support uh, for his presidential campaign, campaign and so forth. And my question, one, one question has always been is, if the Chechens with jihadis had just invaded Dagestan, why would you need to blow up apartment bombers to gain support? Mm -hmm. yeah. right? you, have all the, you have all the reason in the world to uh, battle, uh, to carry out a battle in, the, in, in Chechnya against these uh, jihadis. Why do you need to blow up, risk an operation like that, blowing up 300 of your own people in central Moscow and so forth to do that? My, my own theory on that is that actually Berezovsky was behind that attack, mm -hmm. and it was a way to... Um, uh, he thought maybe either curry favor or entrap Putin into a situation. Because remember, Putin, at this point, Putin had just come to power. He hadn't even been elected president yet. Mm -hmm. He was only uh, uh, acting prime minister. So uh, uh, he did not have a large support base. Uh, you know, even in, within the uh, FSB, where he came from as 
analyst's uh, endlessly uh, <laughs> report, um, you know, he was not a major figure in the FSB and the KGB by any stretch of the imagination, except for the brief period when he headed the KG, the FSB uh, for about a year in uh, from 98 to 99. But other than that, and that, and that was a, basically a fluke. I mean, he was not someone who originally was a high-ranking FSB officer. He was a mid-ranking officer in Germany uh, when, the, when the wall came down and everything collapsed. Um, so this basically kicks off the second so-called Chechen war. And once the Chechen forces, the, the forces of the Chechen Republic area are completely routed um, by basically 2000, 2001, um, it takes about almost a full year for elements to get back together in the mountains of Chechnya. And those elements are basically, basically the jihadi elements, and they come through basically a compromise, the jihadis and the national separatists. And that compromise basically consists of... Um, uh, Aslan Masadov remaining president, but promising that eventually they're going to switch to an uh, all-out uh, jihadist organization. And he agrees that from now on, any decision that he takes and any interpretation of the Chechen Republic of Syria Constitution has to be consistent with Sharia law. And they appoint, uh, they create a committee headed by another jihadi who then succeeds Masadov, um, Sadulayev. And um, he is the one who basically decides if Masadov's decisions are consistent with the uh, Sharia law. So at this point, you can basically say that the jihadists, at a minimum, um, cons uh, consist of about half of the movement and are basically gaining the upper hand within the leadership. Mm -hmm. At a minimum, at minimum, we have a 50-50 compromise, right? And then over the period of 2002 to 2007, there's a battle, right, to actually follow through on this um, plan to switch to a full-fledged jihadi organization. And this is reflected in debates on their websites. And by 2006, Pasaya is announcing that in summer, in January, I believe it was 2006, in summer 2006, we're going to have, conduct a, a, a meeting of the Council of Alema, and we're going to announce a um, decision about creating a jihadi formation. But Pasaya is killed in uh, June, I believe it was, or July 2006. So uh, um, then Masarov, um, uh, basically is forced to concede. Um, Masadov was killed at some point. I forget when exactly he was killed. Now I have to go back and look. I already forgot. I haven't looked at stuff in so long. Um, and basically Umarov takes over. Umarov was a, Umarov was the Doku Umarov, later called Abu Usman, was, was a high-ranking, um, Mujahed to be sure, but you know, he wasn't, he was, I guess he was, you could say he was in the top inner circle of maybe top 10, 15, uh, Mujahideen. And he takes over, and uh, he, in October 2007, then declares the Caucasus Emirate. And there's a split, complete, he basically shuts down the Chechen Republic which carry operation. He breaks up all ties with people like um, uh, Ahmedov in London, who was then the foreign minister of, uh, of the Chechen Republic which carry, and many of the people who were part leading forces in the Chechen Republic which carry fled abroad after the defeat in the Second War. And he, so basically... Many of the national separatists are now abroad, and those who have remained are the real hardcore fighters, the more radical ones, the more determined ones, and of course they're more susceptible to a radical ideology, especially after being routed in the battlefield in 2008. And we all know that the Russian military forces are not the most gentle. <laughs> they right. go about their killing, so that also is a factor, uh, to be sure. Um, so by 2007, now you have the Caucasus Emirate. 
And then we see a gradual increase in the number of jihadi attacks leading from 2008. One way to trace that is looking at the number of suicide bombings, so that by 2011, I believe it was, you had 16 suicide bombings, where previously you never had more than, um, where you had about 14 in 2010, eight, I believe, in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. I have to go back and look at the numbers. But back in 2008 and 2007 and 2006, you weren't talking more than one maximum per year. So you're talking about a large number of suicide bombings occurring in not just in the caucuses, but in Russia and so forth from 2007 to 2012. Uh, then the Civil War breaks out, and I'm going through this in a very superficial way, mm. but then the Civil War breaks out in uh, Syria, and large because uh, the jihad is not overwhelmingly successful um, in the North Caucasus, although by two, 2011 was a sort of peak when there were, uh, I think, 600, 700 attacks. Uh, and as I said earlier, 16 and 14 suicide bombings. Let's go back again with the numbers. Um, uh, but still, the prospects of carrying out real jihad and getting real fighting experience on a real battlefield, you know, not carrying out basically guerrilla operations and hit and run operations, but real battlefield experience, and also just getting access to the training that might be afforded by Al Qaeda at the time, many of the Mujahideen began to leave and go to Syria. Um, and this be, was reflected in a sharp fall in the number of attacks in 2012, another fall in 2013, another in 2014. And by 2013, 2014, you had hundreds of uh, North Caucasus fighters fighting in Syria in various groups. In most of the groups, often there were groups of foreign fighters, and in most of the groups, a Chechen or a Dagestani was the emir, that is the leader of the group. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And the most famous of all was Tahan Batirajvili, who was a uh, ethnic Chechen Kis, which is basically an ethnic Chechen from the Georgian Valley of uh, Pankisi Gorge in Georgia. And he went to fight with one of these groups in Syria, and then he switched over to the Islamic State. He, he became the leader of the Northern Front for the Islamic State, uh, straddling Syria and Iraq, mostly in Syria, around Idlib, by the way, where the recent uh, uh, chemical attack occurred. Um uh, and they were very prominent in this region. So, by 2014, you had large numbers of and, and North Caucasus fighters and other fighters from Russia, Muslim fighters, Tatars, Bashkirs, also people from Central Asia, and often these people were in one group. So this meant that now, you, um, you know, I skipped over the fact also earlier that ideologically, long before, you know, in 2007, the, the Caucasus Emirate was ideologically compatible entirely with al-Qaeda. And in fact, with another teacher who supported al-Qaeda, uh, Abu Asem al-Maktasi, who, according to um, one of the leading uh, research centers at West Point on global jihadism, they characterized around 2012, 2013, as the most influential jihadi theologist and philosopher in the world, more influential than bin Laden. Hmm. And he, he, in 2009, um, endorsed the Caucasus Emirate as a legitimate jihadi organization. He developed a close relation with the leading theoideologist of the Caucasus Emirate, a guy by the, an ethnic um, uh, Kabard, uh, who was the Qadi of the Sharia court, the, the judge of the uh, Sharia court of the Caucasus Emirate. Um, and so the ideologically there was this compatibility. So now, 
so this is why you had these groups go to Syria, and many of them now come in direct contact with elements tied to Al Qaeda. With groups like there were many of these groups that the Chechens were members of were fighting under Al Nusra, the Al Nusra Front, which is an Al Qaeda affiliate. Then you, be, you have the rise of the Islamic State. As I mentioned earlier, Tarhan Batirajvili went over to the um, Islamic State. So now you have a battle inside the North Caucasus about which group we're going to, under, under whose wing we're going to go. We're going to go under the wing of the Islamic State and just declare a caliphate, or are we going to stay, stay, stay with the, you know, a flagging operation called Al-Qaeda, who hasn't pulled out a major, pulled off a major attack in a long time. They don't have a caliphate. They don't have some 30,000 fighters by that time, right? And so a battle begins to emerge within the Caucasus Emirate about which side to uh, join. And eventually, uh, again, to make a long story short, um, with the death of Doku Umarov on the eve of the, um, well, actually about five months before the um, Sochi Olympics, um, and the replacement of a new emir, uh, Dagestani, um, which was inevitable given the Dagestani's preeminence in the North Caucasus, that a Chechen would be replaced by a Dagestani at this time. Um, Dagestani is then killed. His successor is then killed by the name of Gimravi uh, from Gimri in Dagestan, also Dagestani. And as a result, the majority of the Mujahideen see that the operation is not going very well, and they decide to declare their loyalty in 2015, uh, late 2015, I believe, early 2016, again, dates are uh, escaping their loyalty to the Islamic State. And they declare the bayat, that's the uh, loyalty oath to al-Baghdadi. And basically, from what I can tell, um, initially there was maybe 10 to 20 percent who appeared to remain with the Caucasus Emirate and support al-Qaeda. Uh, but the bulk of the emirs from Chechnya and Dagestan and even Nur-Kabarina-Bakaria and Ingushetia, Nur they all uh, followed the... Um, uh, Amir Asildarov, who just was killed last December, to the Caucasus, to the Islamic State. Hmm. Uh, and by now, you have very few Mujahideen in the North Caucasus who are fighting under the banner of the Caucasus Emirate, if there are any at all. Those who are fighting under the banner of the Caucasus Emirate are fighting in Syria, hmm. and there are still several groups who still fly the flag of the Caucasus Emirate, one group called the Caucasus Emirate in Syria. Uh, but the bulk... Uh, of those who are located in North Caucasus are loyal to the Islamic State. Um, so it sounds like, like the the majority of kind of the, would you say that the most radical elements are the ones that went to Syria? Um, because there are still obviously a lot of, um, you know, a lot of problems in, you know, or let's say a lot of what, um, you know, radical jihadis that are still in the, the Caucasus region and still in Russia, and, well, and all over you know, in different various regions of Russia. So how would you kind of um, categorize the the ones that are still there? Or, you know, are they are they be, are they kind of like in Europe, you know, there's the um, in the news you hear a lot about the threat of, you know, the returnees or migrants coming right. into in, into Europe and staging terror attacks. Are we right. seeing something similar in Russia or is it more of still a homegrown thing or both? Yes. Um, well, it hasn't really been a homegrown. The homegrown whole thing is exaggerated, as mentioned earlier, because a lot of this had to do with the al-Qaeda influence. So even yeah. though, you know, fighters may have been fighting because they don't like, um, in part, or initially, if they were with the Chechen Republic, which carried because they didn't like the Russian regime, they wanted to be independent. Over time, they began to switch to a purely religious motivation. Mm -hmm. So the first question, yeah, yeah, basically it's true that most of the, I would, I would, 
the logical, right? That the more radical the fighters, the guys who really wanted to fight, those are the ones who went to Syria, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been there for a while. Many of them have been killed. Uh, many of the, those who went, you know, initially in 2012 uh, have been killed. And I would imagine many of those who were there in 2013 and 2014 were killed. So, you know, you don't survive there very long. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly with the route, the key here is that with the route or the ongoing route or apparent route of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, a lot of these fighters, in fact, uh, Baghdadi uh, gave an order that they should begin to disperse and go back home. Um so there's no doubt that we should begin to see some of these guys uh, traversing, you know, Azerbaijan, and we very likely would see something happen there as well, not just in Turkey, but in Azerbaijan, on the way back home to the North Caucasus, or in some cases to Tatarstan. Mm-hmm. Um, the Russian security services over the last year and a half have claimed to arrest quite a few people who have fought in Syria and Iraq. Um, probably some of those are... Um, Exaggerations. In some cases, it's real. In some cases, it's not. It's a way just throwing an extra charge on somebody you don't like. Uh, but certainly, there are some that are returning. Some are being arrested. Some are not. Um, the St. Petersburg attack was more someone who appears to have been simply a lone wolf. But even the lone wolves, um, people like you know the Zainari brothers who blew, who blew up Boston, uh, the Boston massacre. Um, these are people who, again, we're talking about sort of a virtual movement in many ways that's on the Internet, right? And many people are inspired by these uh, guys, and that's, you know, a pattern, a, a global pattern. Um, in fact, you know, the Caucasus, the, the people from the Chechen Republic of Echkeria became the Caucasus Emirate specifically because they were under the influence of uh, the propaganda of Al-Qaeda, which they largely got from the Internet. Mm-hmm. So a whole, if a whole organization is transforming its ideology under the influence of the web, uh, we can expect that many individuals will. Um, in terms of how many radicals are in Russia now, uh, in the North Caucasus, again, I don't think, um, you know, independent of the Islamic State loyal Mujahideen, there aren't many. Um, there's a larger Islamist movement, that is, uh, a movement of people who believe that you can bring uh, Sharia law uh, to the region or to all of Russia, but by peaceful means, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a different orientation, and that's been developing in Dagestan um, quite a bit, and in fact one of the one of the, one of the cousins of the Zasanaya brothers was a, a figure in that movement, in fact tried to talk uh, Ramadan out of carrying out the attack, and joining the, he, he went to originally to the north to, to Dagestan to join the Caucasus Zaramukhazim, he tried to talk him out of it and he conceded, hmm. and he went back home and blew up Boston, so hmm. to speak. Well, this... Like the, the the kind of dynamic that you're describing, um, it reminds me, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of reminds me of the uh, the original um, Russian Revolution, 1917, and the Bolsheviks, and how you have um, a movement, like a revolutionary movement, that has a certain ideology, and you've got so-called moderates and so-called radicals, and mm-hmm. it seems to be, um, like there's almost, it, well, it seems to me like it's almost a, um, like the well, forgive the term historical necessity, that when you have a, a movement like this, that the most radical elements are the ones that end up um, in charge, basically. So you had the Bolsheviks take over, and um, with various purges and the, the gulag system, you had any kind of even internal um, opposition just stamped out, mm-hmm. and the the original you know so-called um, um, well just 
good-hearted communists who just thought it was a, a good system were, were just just uh, railroaded and pushed uh, pushed over. And so it seems like there's a similar thing in the the so-called Islamist movement, where well, at least that's the way I'm seeing it right now. Because um, like there's an uh, an organization called uh, Hizb ut Tahrir, I think it's called, and it's one of those ones that's banned in Russia. And they are very like they're a vocally Islamist movement, but nonviolent. So they think that um, you know that they'll be able able to establish an Islamic state through nonviolent means, and it'll be this great kind of utopian system. But um, but um, like I found some of these guys online and watched their YouTube channels, and uh, I can't remember the one guy's name, but he's got you know various talks that he's given, and he's giving interviews, and it's all about the Syrian revolution. And so these guys, you know, they're they're interviewing each other and talking about the Syrian revolution and how how they support the Free Syrian Army and how Al Nusra is doing, you know, good work in the Syrian revolution. And it's just horrible these uh, these neoliberal policies that are, you know, trying to stamp out the the revolution. And this is coming from a group that says they're nonviolent. That and um, it seems like it's just. Well, it, it looks like it. It would be even the even the nonviolent, you know, Islamists are heading for a disaster. Right. If they think that they can avoid the kind of um, like really extreme ideology that you see in like Caucasus Emirate and the and the Islamic State, do you have anything right. to comment about that? Yeah, I mean it is very similar. The, the first, the international aspect of the movement, uh, the utopian nature of the movement, um, uh, the ideological nature of the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's this split between radicals and moderates and the tendency for the radicals to have more success in recruiting and then so forth. Um, uh, you basically look at, you know, the Bolsheviks, for example, did not really engage in, in terror. It was the Socialist Revolutionary Party that was engaged more in terror during the, the Russian Revolution. And the Bolsheviks, um, although they were very radical ideologically, no less radical than the Socialist Revolutionaries, in fact, more radical ideologically than the Socialist Revolutionaries, uh, one could argue anyway. Uh, in terms of tactics, they were less radical. Um, so they, uh, basically the Socialist Revolutionaries were the most um, popular party uh, after the, and lead, even lead, leading up to the abdication and the fall of the, the Romanov dynasty and so forth and so on, with the Bolsheviks actually being, being less um, uh, popular. But the Bolsheviks had one adva- advantage in that they were better organized because um, they didn't need to be quite so secretive because they weren't engaged in terror. Mm-hmm. So that was one advantage. Um, although they were willing to carry out violence, but they were more willing to carry out violence once they took power rather than to get the power. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are, are very, very many, yes, similarities. Another similarity is, is this whole uh, inevitability, right? That history is on our side. You know, in, in, the, in the Bolshevik or the communist case, it was uh, due to this interpretation of, you know, dialectical materialism and, and the path of history going from feudalism to capitalism. And so it was inevitable sooner or later. In the case of jihadism, jihadism it's uh, because uh, Allah wills this, so that sooner or later um, there will be this, uh, and if you look at the, the ISIS ideology, which believes that there's you know, going to be a special conflict in an area near Syria, and that's going to bring all the armies of the, uh, uh, for, a short, for a lack of a better word, Satan to the region, and there's going to be a big conflagration, and that's going to bring the global, uh, that's going to bring the Mahdi, and then they're going to have uh, basically a global rule of uh, Islam. Hmm. Um, it's very, it's, it's 
very similar in that sense. Hmm. Well, <laughs> the, the focus of your the three books that you've got out right now and the fourth one, um, we were just talking a little bit about the show, it seems like there's a theme that has run through all of them, and that is just revolution, regime change of some sort, because the first book was uh, Russia's Revolution from Above, so... Um, <laughs> Well, we can we can get into that a bit, but just to to kind of preface it, like the the way you basically are describing the you know global jihad movement is a revolutionary movement. So maybe just to get into to some of the um, kind of theory behind that, um, maybe you can just describe why it's a revolutionary movement and what you know what a revolution or revolutionary movement actually is. Right. Well, the standard definition of a revolutionary movement is a revolutionary is a um Illegal, basically, or anti-constitutional uh, movement, the standard definition. From below, in society that seeks to overthrow the order and create a new social order, new political order, uh, new socioeconomic order, new, a new political order. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be done through a peaceful revolution from below or a violent peace uh, revolution from below. It doesn't have to be necessarily um, violent. So essentially, this the, the jihadi movement fits the model, no less than the communist movement that we were discussing earlier, right? They want to overthrow all secular regimes and establish uh, Islamist regimes, Sharia law-based uh, regimes. Hmm. Um, and that implies certain things about how the economy will be run, although a lot of these things aren't very well worked out. Just as, by the way, the communists didn't have a very well, very well worked out scheme about how government was to be the function. You know, they had a, a slogan. The uh, dictatorship of the proletarian, but how was that to be structured, and how would they actually manage the society at all different levels? <laughs> uh, that wasn't <laughs> we'll, very well worked we'll out. Figure that out when we get there. <laughs> right, exactly, uh, and basically, you see, uh, there's a very similar uh, problem in the jihadist movement. Um, and so, once they, these people take power, there'll be a power struggle between all the different factions about how they we're supposed to design this. Uh, the new mm-hmm. Soviet man, or in this case, the new jihadi man, the new Islamist uh, mm-hmm. uh, man. So, um, in this sense, there's no doubt that it's a revolutionary movement, and quite often the literature is all, always focused on the tactic of terrorism, rather than the fact that this is a global revolutionary movement, mm-hmm. uh, with the added advantage of having <laughs> the Internet, <laughs> which yeah. the Bolsheviks and the communists didn't have. <laughs> well, if we, but if you look on RT, there are... Uh, RT Twitter is doing a hundredth um, anniversary of the revolution thing, where huh. where all the guys, you know, Lenin and and uh, the Tsar, they all have Twitter accounts, so they're tweeting their way through the revolution. So you can <laughs> you can see what it would have, what it would have looked like, well, yeah. kind of. But um, when um, oh, what was what was I going to say? Um, so we're we're talking about this about the jihadis as a revolutionary movement. Yeah, that's right. So um, so when you look at, for example, communism. Uh, the communist ideology as a revolutionary movement. I mean, communists, um, you know, at one point, what, they, there were communist or communist-inspired um, governments covering, what, like 60% of the, you know, the, the global landmass. Mm-hmm. And, the, and so this seems to be like the same kind of um, goal or ideology that these jihadi movements have. But, um, like, in your books, you talk about something called complex causality and basically what leads to a revolution and why revolutions actually succeed or fail. So maybe before we get into those, some of those specifics, when you look at the, the jihadi revolution and, and their actual ultimate goals, which essentially is, you know, world domination, um, mm-hmm. how, um, how plausible is that? You know, are they, you know, 
because they've got these dreams of taking over every country. Well, is that even possible? Could they even could they even you know conquer a a non-Muslim majority country or a nation that only has a tiny um, you know Muslim population? And then like do, do they even think that through, or do they? Is something like that possible? Like maybe you know I just don't know enough about history, and there's you know cases of you know these minorities just you know taking over you know the entire world. You know, you just mentioned it. What's you that? just mentioned the communist movement, right? Right. right? If you read, <laughs> yeah, the, but, it's interesting to read Solzhenitsyn describing uh, Lenin in Zurich in uh, nineteen, I believe it was nineteen thirteen, or yeah, I think it was nineteen thirteen, nineteen fourteen, and you know here's this guy giving lectures to like uh, five or six, you know, radical communists in Zurich, yeah. where there's, where there's no prospect whatsoever of communists ever coming to power, and the next thing you know, four years later. He's ruling Russia, you know. Mm-hmm. So it depends. They, to some extent, they need chaos. They need uh, something like a world war, right? Yeah. Uh, world War One is basically what facilitated the Bolsheviks coming to power, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Bolsheviks were able to use the German support against the the, the Russian uh, czarist regime. One can imagine similar um, things happening. I'm not I'm not making a, the same analogy, but if you look, for example. Um, or making not making this a direct analogy, but if you look, for example, at the support that the Obama administration gave through Libya yeah. to the Syrian rebels, not taking into account the fact that large a large portion of the Syrian rebels were either Muslim Brotherhood or jihadist, um, you know, multiply that, put that on, uh, uh, extrapolate that onto a world scare, a world, a world war, a world war scale scenario. Right where there's utter chaos, uh, regimes are falling all over the place because of the war and the instability it's caused and the economic dislocation and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. One can easily imagine one or more parties deciding to, deciding to support a jihadist group or an Islamist group or a combined um, uh, revolutionary front organization that in, that involves uh, you know because often another point about revolutions is revolutions are are are, are usually made the, at least the destruction of the regime. Of the old regime are made by um, coalitions of uh, wide-ranging ideological orientations. You know, all the way if you look at the Russian Revolution, all the way from liberal Democrats like the Constitutional Party to groups willing to engage in terrorism like the Socialist Revolutionaries to the Bolsheviks to the Mensheviks. Um, so one can imagine a uh, coalition of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hizbut Tahrir, uh, maybe a group affiliated with Al-Qaeda, who's willing to carry out terrorism, and his Tahrir and Muslim Brotherhood are willing to tolerate that because it's uh, an effective tactic. They don't want to engage it. They don't want to dirty their hands, but they're willing to tolerate it and use it to their advantage. And maybe uh, a socialist group here thrown in, or who knows what. Um, and one or more powers decide to support this coalition in some countries, say in Egypt or, uh, who knows, Saudi Arabia or somewhere, and then they come to power, and they get their hands on resources. And they're able to build a, a new regime. Um, it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Mm. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, whether circumstances will facilitate it, whether they have good leadership, whether they uh, have a convincing uh, propaganda uh, narrative, if they have, um, again, resources, yeah. uh, and the opportunity, right? Which mm. means, you know, a, a weak state or a weak regime in which they're located, which they can use all these instruments they have to uh, over, overthrow and topple. So, yeah, I don't yeah. think it's out of the question at all. It's a matter of 
it's a matter of time and the right circumstances. It's yeah. not. It's not. It's not something that's imminent. But <laughs> depending mm-hmm. on how things go on an international level, and this is why I've been trying to uh, uh, push the idea of cooperation between the West and Russia and even China in the global jihad, because mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know if we can al- if we could ally with Stalin against the Nazis in World War Two. I don't see why we can't ally with the Chinese and the Russians to fight the jihadists. Yeah. For me, it's, just, it's a it's a no brainer. No, that's a that's a really great point. I, uh, I I just wanted to touch on the you brought up the topic of ideology a number of times, and I was wondering if you could describe in you know different revolutionary movements have been associated with major ideological changes, you know, like the Communist Manifesto or the rise of liberalism, the spread of democracies, and and I was wondering if you could touch on why now we're seeing this Islamic State uh, spreading, what it is that is in this Islamic ideology that is, uh, that is fomenting these kind of revolutionary conditions or using these grievances that people have around the world and kind of weaponizing them into revolutionaries. Right. Well, I mean, you have uh, a situation in, across the Muslim world, not just in the Muslim world, but mostly in the Muslim world, where you have a large portion of the population that, that's destitute. Um, they're already uh, partially um, inclined to buy Islamist arguments because they're adherents of the Islamic religions. That's not to say that all Muslims are uh, jihadists or Islamists, but it does mean that many, many Muslims are potential jihadis or Islamists, just, uh, Islamists, just like um, uh, <laughs> many Russian citizens uh, during World War One, were potential socialists and were actually were socialists, right? Because mm-hmm. they were living in a country where um, there were serious social problems. The regime did, want to, did not want to address them. And there was an ideology that appeared to answer to solve, to answer those questions to solve those problems, right? Mm-hmm. Right? The socialist uh, ideology, the communist ideology was promising um, uh, economic equality was diagnosing why people didn't have economic equality. We're going to argue, well, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm no Marxist by any sense. I'm a, I'm a capitalist. Uh, but, you know, the argument for people, and remember, the other thing is in many, in many people in Russia were um, either illiterate or borderline Ill, Ill, illiterate or had just become illiterate and had just come to a big city, just come to a university. You see, you see a similar pattern going on uh, in, the, in the Muslim world where you have a certain level of modernization in certain places. Uh, so people are coming from the villages into the city. They're seeing a new life. They're being introduced to new ideas and so forth and so on. Um, uh, at the same, and, and some of those ideas are pro-democracy ideas. Some of those ideas may be socialist. And uh, one of the contending ideologies is uh, Islamism and the subcategory uh, jihad, jihadism. And so you combine this sort of economic dislocation, this, uh, this poverty, um, the harshness of many of the regimes in the region, uh, the weakness in some cases of certain states. Uh, for example, the Iraqi state turned out to be relatively weak and quickly quickly crumbled, although it had a strong man like Saddam and seemed to be a strong state. In fact, it, it was not. And then you combine that with uh, an ideology that seems to provide an answer that that is uh, already compatible with um, a set of ideas that these people already have, have, right? They're already they're already Muslims, so why not um, simply reinterpret your Islam mm-hmm. if this new re- if this reinterpretation offers an answer to all your problems and the problems of your society? Mm-hmm. So 
uh, it's not. It's really not surprising at all. It's not any more surprising than what happened in Russia mm-hmm. in a uh, hundred years ago. Well, ideology is one of the um, the points you bring up in your your book, The Caucasus Emirate Mujahideen, as you know one of one of these um, kind of causal factors that go into to revolution. Um, maybe I want to kind of step back a bit and look at the the kind of theory that we can then apply to all these uh, particulars. And that is kind of the um, the conditions that go into you know a revolutionary situation or you know a revolutionary crisis, and then the possible ways that that can go. Because we've mentioned a couple, um, or you have, you mentioned like the the possibility of a revolution from below, and then we also mm-hmm. mentioned a revolution from above, but we didn't really get into what that means yet. But then there's also you know um, transitions. So you have right. uh, pacted transitions or imposed transitions. Um, maybe can you just walk us through that, um, you know, that, um, flow chart <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> decades of research. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so, well, to start out with, what would be the, um, the, the preconditions? So the, the conditions that create a revolutionary situation on the ground. And I know you mentioned a couple of them, but just, uh, you know, rattle them off. Yeah. Well, they're two separate things, right? What creates a revolutionary situation and then the four types of, uh, possible regime change, right? I mean, the two issues are related. So basically, uh, what I tried to do initially was, I, at the time when I started writing the the book and my dissertation, the popular field of study in post-Soviet studies and in democracy studies, of course, was the so-called transitology or uh, transition. And, and, and they basically posited things like the idea of a packet transition in which you would have elements from the regime and opposition negotiate um, the creation of a new form of rule, right? Mm-hmm. Um, an imposed transition in which you have basically the regime deciding either because they've diagnosed the situation, they see that a few years down the road there's going to be a revolution, or they've come to the conclusion that the way they're ruling is uh, improper, ineffective, or, or some other reason. Um, uh, uh, not worth continuing pursuing, and they decide by themselves with minimal pressure from the streets, from the opposition, to begin a transition. So you had a similar case, that, uh, that was a, a case, that, uh, for example, in New Mexico in the 1990s and early 2000s, basically when the PRI over time allowed the opposition parties to win state elections and eventually let, let them win um, a na- national elections. Hmm. Um, uh, then you have revolutionary change, right? And the, the, the most, um, again, the classic case is the revolution from above. Um, the difference between a transition and a revolution, simply the major di- difference is that, there are, there are several differences, but one of the major differences is that uh, <clears throat> in uh, revolutions, take the process is largely illegal and a-constitutional or anti-constitutional or extra-constitutional, Right? Uh, in the case of an impacted transition, a pacted transition, right, you have a group, a set of institutions, and using those institutions, the opposition and the regime change the regime. In the case of an imposed, an imposed transition, again, the regime, the ruling groups, use the existing political system to enact uh, a series of laws or change their practice in terms of, say, Mexico, no less cheating less in elections and so forth and so on, um, in order to allow the opposition to come to power. In revolutions, it's an illegal process, right? If it's a revolution from below, then what happens is you have groups in society who organize and seize power, overthrow the old regime, and establish a new order 
um, from below. If it's a revolution from above, then what happens is groups within state organizations or state institutions engage in some sort of illegal takeover in order to change the form of rule. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the basic four different types. And then I tried to, so what I tried to do is unite the two fields of study. There was the field of transitology, there was a separate field of people who studied revolution. And when I looked at the two processes, I noticed that up to, up to a certain point, they are very much in common, right? Mm -hmm. They're usually caused by some kind of economic uh, dislocation, some kind of financial crisis, which then um, suggests to the regime that they need to engage in reforms. Those reforms have unintended consequences, which either weaken the state or they create a, regi a, a split within the regime. The split within the regime uh, uh, then causes some people to defect from the regime. That weakens the regime, weakens the state, and then the opposition becomes strong. And so what happens at a certain point, you have a revolutionary situation, right? You have a situation where uh, groups in society, or if it's a revolution from above within the state, um, have a want to change, want to create a completely different form of rule, or a significantly different form of rule, that is changed from a democracy, from a authoritarian regime to a democracy, or a totalitarian regime to a democracy, or from a democracy to authoritarian regime in theory, for example, like the Hitler regime, essentially. Uh, and um, for the revolutionary movement to succeed, its resources need to be, and its, its overall strength, need to be somewhat comparable to those of the ruling groups mm -hmm. in the state, right? Yeah. Um, or the ruling groups is revolution from above, the revolutionaries and the, uh, regime, the regime ruling groups are both in the state. So in the case of a revolution from below, the revolutionary coalition, usually in, in, in case of revolution again, you have coalitions, they need to have effective leaders. Again, I mentioned these things before. Effective leaders sufficient resources, effective propaganda, a marketable idea that answers certain questions and seems to be an answer to, the, to society's problems, uh, effective recruitment, right? Resources to support the recruits, something for the recruits to do to further the revolution, right? Um, so then what happens is you basically, if you have that kind of situation, then the ball sort of it goes into the regime's uh, court, right? Because you have, you'll have a, a fairly um, viable, even vital opposition revolution movement that may be potentially able to seize power. And then the, the regime, who's losing support in certain many cases because of the regime split that I mentioned earlier, needs to come to a decision. Either we're going to continue on this path and hope they can't come to the opposition can't come to power. We can negotiate with the opposition. Or we can engage in a crackdown. Usually what happens is you have two or three elements within the regime. Some support a crackdown, some support um, continuing as usual, even though things are going badly with unintended consequences and so forth. Continue with the perestroika, for example, uh, or, or we, we rekindle, so, uh, we format the, the perestroika or the reforms. And another group will decide, why don't we just sit down at the table with the more moderate people in the opposition and come to an agreement and switch it over to a new form of rule, right? Uh, yeah. And that's certainly, and that's that would be your packet or negotiated um, transition. A lot of that decision-making that goes on, again, has to do with who are the stronger groups within the regime, right? Within the regime ruling groups. If, um, if the soft-liners who want to negotiate uh, are now dwindling down to a very weak handful, and they don't have control of the... Um, Organs of coercion, the secret police, the military, and so forth and so on. 
then there's a very grave risk that they're not going to be able to hold on to power and hardliners who want to revert, who want to crack down, or maybe someone in coalition with those who just want to continue uh, either fake reforms or watered-down reforms may attempt to just crack down on both the opposition and the softliners. That's what we saw in the August coup, in the August 1990 coup, right? Hardliners moved against both Gorbachev and Yeltsin uh, in order to put an end to perestroika. Because Gorbachev at the time was engaging in uh, a process of uh, packing. He was pact-making with the opposition. And the plan was that in the fall of 1991, uh, they were going to, um, already in August 1991, they were going to sign the Union Treaty. In, in, in the Union Treaty, the, the um, text that was in the Union Treaty and would be used in the Constitution was that they were going to create a full democracy, right, with universal suffrage, no set-aside seats for the Communist Party, as was, was created by Gorbachev earlier, uh, during the perestroika period, um, uh, full access to media, a complete democratic transition. He was going to split the Communist Party into into uh, groups, severing, uh, basically kicking out the hardliners and keeping a moderate party for himself. He was going to run for president. Elson probably would have run for president, too. Um, and that was one of the reasons why the coup occurred, because they saw in the text of the Union Treaty a full transition to democracy, plus the fact that uh, Gorbachev was apparently willing to let six or seven or eight Union republics leave the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So you put all that together, and that sparked the coup. So, you know, it's a very complicated um, issue. There are economic, social, political uh, factors that go into the deciding, right, whether the dynamics of the revolutionary situation are going to go into a transition or into a revolution. And then... Mm-hmm. In terms of if it's going to be a revolution, it depends on if there are opposition forces in society or the state who are the most powerful. Who get revolution from above are a fairly rare thing. You know, we only have there are only maybe seven or eight cases of revolution from above that are, that I know of, um, and so they're fairly rare compared to revolution from below. But they do occur, and they occurred in my view. One occurred in 1991 mm-hmm. in, uh, in Russia. So. What were maybe two or three other examples you can think of? Uh, the the Meiji uh, takeover in the in Japan in the early nineteenth uh, the mid early mid nineteenth century, uh, Ataturk's Turkey, for example. Um, some argue that the the, the uh, takeover of power by Nasser in Egypt and the switchover from a, 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 um, a more religious regime regime to a more uh, secular regime also. Uh, one could argue, for example, that the takeover of the Assads in Syria was a revolution from above. Also, mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein in Iraq, in which they switched over from sort of a monarchical type of rule to um, uh, what's called you know, sort of Arab nationalism, or Arab national socialist regimes, sort of the Baptist uh, mm-hmm. ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the most prominent cases. Also, the uh, there may be a few, uh, for example, the Peruvian um, military takeover in the 50s or 60s, I believe it was. So, okay. um, there are some cases, but revolution from below is much more uh, yeah. widespread. Well, and in, if we look at revolutions from below, you mentioned that they can be either peaceful or violent. Um, one of the features that kind of strikes me about, well, when I picture the kind of like the perfect storm, the perfect revolutionary storm where it, kind of, you know, everything that can happen does happen. The way I see it is like, um, it's not just a regime change. 
It's not just that the you know the people running the government get replaced, right. but there's a total restructuring of pretty much the entire social structure. You know, from right. the level of the village to the level the very top levels of of power. Right. And um, have you looked at that at all? Um, do you like what might contribute to that direction as opposed to let's say you know a peaceful revolution where things pretty much kind of well, many of the structures kind of stay the same, but there is a, a you know a visible and real change in the in the regime. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about economic, uh, socioeconomic change as opposed to political transformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in, in most cases, uh, it involves both. It's not just that the, the political change is is, is is undertaken to facilitate socioeconomic change. Yeah. So either uh, if you have a in the case if you have a, a Soviet regime, right, which was was totalitarian and and the state owned everything, part of the new ideology of the revolutionaries and even some of the reformers, right, was a, a capitalist model, right? And even Gorbachev, who was very reluctant to move to a full capitalist model, still wanted to engage in uh, a major privatization by the time um, you know August nineteen ninety one began, and he even toyed with that in the fall of 1990 when he was negotiating with Yeltsin over the 500 days program. Um, so that's one, one, one case, right, is from when you move from entirely state-owned to a more capitalist model. And then, of course, we have the cases of the Marxist revolutions where um, uh, in a capitalist society or, or where there's a grossly uh, disproportionate distribution of um, wealth, you know, combined with combined with political repression, which they and they usually uh, go hand in hand. Uh, Marxists came to power, and they wanted to do quite the opposite. They wanted to take the property away from um, the upper classes and give it to the lower classes. The problem is they didn't have a mechanism to ensure um, that dictatorship would not emerge in the process of doing that. And there simply becomes, and it's hard to imagine a process where whereby you can do that, right? Yeah, uh, it's very difficult, uh, and. So in, in most cases, these things are, are tied, although one can argue, for example, if you look at the revolutions from above, for example, um, the socioeconomic, one of the, one of the aspects, one of the things, one of the aspects of revolution from above compared to revolution from below is that there's actually less change in a revolution from above, and that's because, as I argued in the book, and, for example, uh, Trimberger, who wrote about the Magi Revo- Restoration Revolution, or, well, she called it a revolution from above, um, one aspect is that the change was, was less dramatic. So, in a sense, we're seeing that now, say, in, in, in post-Soviet Russia, right? Um, rather than seeing, you know, a really vibrant democracy, uh, I mean, well, democracy also, but a vibrant economy with, you know, a large percentage of the economy being driven by small businesses, as in the West, and um, overwhelming majority of um, uh business and economic activity occurring outside the state, what we're seeing is, in fact, that in Russia, you still have uh, 50% or more of the economic activity under the control of the state, and a good part of the rest of it is under pressure um, from the state, if not, uh, when not direct control. So, in this sense, there was minimal change, and one of the reasons is because in a revolution from above, there's not a complete um, changeover in the ruling class. What happens is you have, because you have the revolution occurring, uh, being made by elements within the state, you have people from the old regime, right? And they may have 
less of a commitment to an overhaul of the old regime. They have, may have less of a concrete uh, vision about what the new regime should look like. For example, in its most obvious case, right, if you've been someone who's educated in, in a Marxist system with uh, intense uh, <laughs> censorship, you're not going to have a very good idea of how a capitalist economy works, mm-hmm. right? So you had all these guys who maybe wanted to create something they called a capitalist system because when they traveled abroad, they saw how wealthy and how well-to-do even lower, the lower middle class was in a, in a capitalist society. Uh, they didn't know um, exactly how that society functions, no less know how to move from a highly centralized state economy to that system. In fact, capitalists didn't know how to do that, and that was one of the problems of the transition, is that no one knew how to do that. Hmm. So well, let's, let's just try it anyways <laughs> and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, 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 and then Buster was pressurized to do it as quickly as possible mm-hmm. from the West, yeah. which created a lot of serious problems with, in the case of Russia, Minimal economic support. Hmm. You know the other, the, and, and, and the irony was that in the post, uh, the, the post-communist period, the much smaller countries that had a much a shorter period of time under communist rule, and in many cases the communist rule there was, um, in terms of economic management, was less centralized than it was in the Soviet Union. They received a good proportion, a good um, deal of economic assistance. Yet there, the problems facing them were much uh, less uh, formidable, whereas mm-hmm. in, in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, most importantly Russia, the largest country with the most, uh, all sorts of problems connected with the Soviet past, there was very little economic assistance, uh, relatively speaking, and the same, at the same time, pressure to move as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that created all sorts of problems, mm. political and economic. Well, speaking of political and economic problems, um, your next book is the one on Ukraine. Um, first of all, can you tell us when when is that book going to be out? Do you have a release date yet? Um, I heard that uh, from the publisher about a month ago that I could not expect the uh, the page proofs earlier than two months from now. So okay. maybe in five or six weeks, I might get the page proofs. Maybe longer, but okay. you know, hopefully, it'll be, my guess is it'll be out somewhere in late summer. Okay, good. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, But maybe we could talk a little bit about Ukraine, because there we have another example of regime change, of course, the Maidan. Um, What has it been, like three years now? 2014? 2014. I believe, yeah. Years of the anniversary of the takeover, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us, can you kind of take us through that, kind of using the, the model that we've, you know, we've been talking about the for the you know first part of the show, how does this kind of um, what were the various factors that went into um, into the Maidan and and you know where is Ukraine now and kind of and where is it going from from there? Right. Um, the problem I don't think the revolutionary model works very well for um, Ukraine, and the reason is is that even under Yanukovych, although there was massive massive corruption, um, elections were more or less free and fair. That mm-hmm. is the uh, Power changed hands between different group groups two or three times. Um, when I say with more or less free and fair, what I mean is both sides had equal opportunity to cheat, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know, and and those who cheated more effectively and won the most support would win the elections. So again, you know, the, you can say it was basically a minimal, a minimally um, uh, democratic uh, regime, right? A, a very weak democratic regime. 
if you use the minimal definition of uh, democracy and that being fairly, uh, more or less free and fair elections. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there was basically, there was, there was free independent media under Yanukovych and so forth and so on, and in the, the, uh, the, the administrations before him. So, I don't, and if you look at the situation now, you're, you're seeing that basically uh, there's pressure on the free media, in uh, independent media in Ukraine. Um, elections are as dirty as they were under Yanukovych. Um, uh, there's pressure against the opposition, repression in some cases. So, in terms of the political regime, um, nothing has changed. There's been no real improvement. Uh, corruption. <laughs> Two reports. One, I think the most recent one came out from um, Transparency International. Uh, Ukraine is actually worse in terms of the level of corruption than it was uh, when Yanukovych fell from power. Mm -hmm. A new survey put out by another group, it's not a, actually a, a measure of corruption, but it's rather a measure of perceptions of corruption, rate, rated Ukraine the most corrupt country in the world. Mm -hmm. just, just came out recently. So on the measurement of corruption also, Nothing has changed. If anything, things have gotten a little worse. Uh, in, in terms of um, property, there's no been there's no been there has been no um, major handover of property from one class to another or one group from another. Other than if you count, you know, uh, the repression of certain oligarchs who were tied to Yanukovych and the handover of their property to oligarchs who are close to Poroshenko. One of those oligarchs happens, happens to be Poroshenko himself, who has not even divested himself of his properties, even though he promised to do that during the presidential campaign. So, in my view, um, we can't really talk about a, a, re, a regime change in, as a result of the Maidan revolution. Um, mm -hmm. Now, if, if over the next five or ten years we were to see, you know, um, uh, an end to... Um, Repression and discrimination against the opposition parties and against ethnic Russians. If we were to see uh, uh, corruption wiped out, um, and we began to see at least some more economic uh, or efficient and more distributive um, ownership of uh, the wealth, then maybe we could say, yeah, well, there was a, there was a revolution. It just a long, it took a long time to be implemented, but. There are problems with that in that uh, there are forces within Ukraine that are, are not just simply corrupt and, and weakly committed to democratic governance. There are forces that are outright uh, ultra-nationalist and totalitarian who are, uni who are united with the powers to be at present mm -hmm. and at the same time are seeking to overthrow it. So... And then here we're talking about the alternationalists like the uh, right sector and um, Svoboda Party and a host of other smaller parties and the uh, radical party of uh, and So um, there are some real problems. So we may be looking at you know something like uh, the first phase of a revolution, right, with the second phase still to come in which ultranationalists uh, come to power and it may affect a real revolutionary takeover, but one that goes in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So I guess, well, to me, it kind of looks like what happened is it was regime change only in the sense of let's, you know, we, we want to take out this guy in power that we don't like and then just illegally put in another guy that, you know, is, you know, worse in some ways, just as bad or 
or you know, and others. Then basically, it was just a change in face that was you know illegal and and uh, you know violent, and there was this kind of you know right. pseudo revolutionary thing going on at the Maidan. But really, there was no kind of change in the actual structure of government, the way things work. In fact, things just kind of got worse, which you'd kind of expect when. Um, when you look at the kind of people that they, you know, decided to put in into power, and then there, then there's an, another factor, and that is the kind of the foreign factor, and that's the support that these, um, you know, the new team got from foreign governments like the U.S. And even the, you know, it, it still strikes me as um, almost well, it should be hard to believe, even though it isn't. Like the image of, um, you know, before the actual change uh, in power, before the the you know Yanukovych was actually officially ousted was to see American politicians you know on the streets in Ukraine doing these sorts of things and and giving support to the to this you know so-called opposition when um, like can you imagine that kind of thing let's say happening in the U.S. where you have foreign leaders members of foreign governments you know on the streets of New York you know. Imagine like imagine Putin coming to New York and being like, you know, let's get rid of Hillary Clinton if Hillary Clinton was, you know, became president. It would be yeah. it would be like we'd entered into a bizarro world. Yeah. And and yet it just it happens just, you know. Yeah. It, no questions. It's like it's Might normal. makes right. Might yeah. makes right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, there were a couple of comments on on everything you said. I mean, first about um it wasn't really a pseudo revolution at the beginning. I mean, at yeah. the beginning, it really was uh, the middle class and uh, mothers with kids and, and grandmothers and grandfathers and fathers who wanted to see an end to corruption. They wanted to be part of the European Union because they thought that would be the way to end corruption and also to become better off economically. Right? And, and so that, that implied right that there would be a redistribution of economic power because the oligarchs would be weakened and um, uh, economic uh, wealth would trickle down to use the American phrase <laughs> from American politics, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they also wanted, and corruption involved both economic corruption and political corruption, right? The, uh, the election results that they saw um, didn't seem to be fair, so they wanted to So in that case, you were talking about really a quasi-revolutionary movement that could have become fully revolutionary uh, a peaceful revolution from below, for example. Mm -hmm. um, problem was that the, these uh, ultranationalists then began to flood in from Lvov and other places, Volin and other places in Ukraine, where they have um, uh, not strongholds, but uh, there are larger numbers of them. Um, uh, and they began to arm themselves and arm the arm the, uh, the Maidan against the regime and initiated many of the cases of the first violence that occurred. Uh, so, and actually they were the ones who were behind the, the so-called Snipers Massacre on 2014 that scuttled the agreement between European Union and Russia and the Ukrainian opposition and Yanukovych about a transition, a pacted transition, in fact, that had been agreed upon on, on 20th uh, uh, February. And they scuttled that agreement, and then without any, without blinking an eye, the United States backed the, backed the takeover. Um so that was uh, the problem. So initially there was potential, I think, for, and that, that potential still is there in that some of those people, representatives of those people who wanted to see an end of corruption and wanted to see a more vibrant democracy and uh, so forth and so on, 
Some of those people are in power. Some, there's no doubt about it. Some of them. But they're not the strongest power the elements. The strongest elements are the oligarchs and the ultranationalists and corrupt elements and so forth. Mm -hmm. Criminal elements. So uh, that's the problem. In terms of, yeah, interference in <laughs> um, uh, foreign uh, elections and so forth, I mean, one classic case, I, I, I can't remember who wrote it, it might have been me, it might have been somebody else, but somebody uh, conjectured, what if Zhirinovsky came to Ferguson, right? <laughs> right? Uh, something like this, right? Of course, that wouldn't happen because Zhirinovsky himself is a racist, but that's uh, that's another issue. <laughs> but, but if Zhirinovsky if, if were to come to something like, well, for example, if Zhirinovsky were to come to occupy Wall Street, for example, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or a senator, well, he, he's, a, he's a deputy in the, in the Duma, so he's similar to a deputy, he's like a congressman. So, and maybe uh, the ambassador of uh, Russia to, from Russia to the United States. And they walked around to occupy uh, Wall Street and encourage the people to stay there and so forth. But it's actually even more complicated. It's even more, it's, it's even more complicated than that because uh, imagine the scenario if, in fact, the Russians had been financing different groups who ended up on the Occupy Wall, Occupy Wall Street, which was precisely what was happening um, in the years leading up to um, not just the, the, the second Maidan revolution, but the first one, the so-called Orange Revolution. Mm -hmm. In fact, we were financing all sorts of groups, and the idea was to um, institute regime change, a regime transformation to promote democracy, the way as, as we cause it, call it. But the problem here is, is that this democracy promotion instrument is a very dull instrument. We cannot um, control the forces uh, that receive our funding. We can't even necessarily control um, the forces that, rec that receive the funding. That is, who gets the funding, right? Because the funding might go to one group, but that funding might get passed on to another group. Uh, one group might pretend to be a democratic organization, but in fact they're quite an ultranationalist organization. Yeah. Um, plus, there was all sorts of official involvement um, by the United States uh, in terms of um, creating these huge networks of people who received funding from various uh, U.S. government-connected foundations and so forth and so on. The classic case is, um, uh, now I'm forgetting her last name. Um, I wrote about it in the book, but I forget her last name. But the woman who worked in the State Department, and then she became uh, Minister of Finances of Ukraine after the revolution. And she actually left the State Department. She, she at one point, I believe, worked in the uh, U.S. Embassy in Kiev. She also worked at the State Department. Then after she left the State Department, she received a grant from the U.S. government. And then she went to Ukraine and opened up a huge foundation. And her and her husband began to invest money in different um, uh, businesses and other foundations. And they created a huge network of people who then went to different seminars on how to demonstrate and so forth and so on. So we basically funded people who would be ready to engage in revolutionary activity. Uh, if and when that occurred. And so then you add on the fact that once that begins, then Senator McCain and uh, I think it was Congressman Smith who showed up and the U.S. ambassador and uh, Ukraine and Secretary Newland handing out cookies, going on the square and supporting the very people who had already received money from them or some of them, right? Not all the grandmas and moms on the square received money, but the organizations who mobilized them, some of them or many of them, and who were organizing the whole operation, the stage, and the whole operation, they had received uh, funding, mm -hmm. right? And then you add on top of 
uh, on that fact, and then you've got to get to the point, then you get to the issue of unmanageability of the process, right? Okay, so you recreate, you recreate um, people who want democracy. Then an event occurs, and they go out in the square, and they start to demonstrate. Okay, fine. Peaceful revolution from below, I'm all for it. If it's, if the idea is to create democracy and get rid of corruption, fine, as long as it remains people. problem is you can't control the process, because revolutionary uh, movements, again, are coalitions, and they can be wide-ranging coalitions in terms of ideology. So, again, what you had was uh, the Svoboda Party being part of the coalition. It's an ultra-nationalist, anti-Semitic party. Side by side with more democratic parties or quasi-democratic parties. And then you had the formation on the uh, second or third night of the Maidan on the square itself of right sector, which was another Svoboda type party, a neo-fascist party, um, based on another group called the Ukrainian National Assembly, which is also a, basically a neo-Nazi party. With uh, symbolics that are uh, Nazi-like and an ideology that's uh, radically totalitarian um, and imperialist, uh, and so forth. And these people are the ones who organized the violence on the Maidan. These are the ones who organized the, um, the snipers' attacks on the police and on demonstrators, simultaneously shooting at demonstrators and um, uh, police on the night of uh, February 19th and on February 20th. That led to the revolt and led to the violation of the agreement that had been signed by the European Union, Russia, uh, Ukrainian opposition, and Yanukovych. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's much more serious than simply a couple of officials appearing on the square, though that's serious enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's what <laughs> happened before and then what happened after. You know, So you can basically say that it was a U.S.-backed uh, takeover. Yeah. You know? Even if the original intention was not to have something like that, something like that which occurred, occur. Mm -hmm. But once it occurred, we didn't oppose it. <laughs> yep. So that's that, that's the key point. Well, for all these years, these uh, those neo-Nazi groups have been protesting against Poroshenko and you know causing riots and uh, running running like mad, or, you know, starting you know gunfights with uh, the army and you know. Right. And just causing chaos, but I was just—I was wondering—have uh, they increased in their political power, or are they more like a, just a gang that's maybe used by certain <laughs> oligarchs now and then um, to whatever keep pressure on Poroshenko or to advance whatever goals they are uh, they have? But are they um, advancing in political power? Do they have? I mean, are, would we see another Maidan attempt in the future on their part, like they've promised in the past? I think at some point we could see that. It depends, again, on um, one of the things that, that makes one at least partially be able to understand why the West continues to support Poroshenko is that if they don't support Poroshenko, um, and I mean financially and morally and so forth and politically, uh, is that uh, these characters could very well come to power. That's, that is the problem. Um, I don't know. I can't say for sure that they've um, increased their strength, but they certainly have not lost any strength. Mm -hmm. And so if you, take, if you look at the numbers of deputies, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a trickier thing than simply looking at um, uh, the parties represented in the, um, in the RADA, because um, some of the people who are members of uh, neo-Nazi and neo-fascist parties became members of other groups that are less radical. Okay. Uh, but they have a seat in the RADA, and, and um, 
Um, so there's still potentially a problem. And then, of course, parties outside the RADA that didn't get elected, like um, uh, Right Sector and the Savota Party, in the past, uh, party, Support Party has been elected and they've actually received um, large minorities in certain areas, like Tinopo. Uh, I think they received like 30% uh, of the assembly in the region of Tinopo a few years back. So these are forces that are definitely, you know, forces that need to be dealt with in one way or another um, and potentially could come to power. You don't, altogether, probably the number of neo fascist and ultra nationalist deputies in the, in the in the RADA, it's probably something like 30%, um, uh, but there are other people who are willing to vote along with them in blocks. And um, so it's a dangerous situation. And the longer the, the economy continues to deteriorate or at least uh, stagnate, um, if at some point uh, the West withdrew its support uh, for Ukraine, and I think this is one of the things that stood behind the recent uh, vote in the U European Union to give at least short-term visa-free status of Ukrainians into Europe is because they understand, um, they don't understand that they, well, maybe they do understand that they've created the problem, but now that there is a problem, they understand that if they uh, uh, take the, the foot off the pedal of support for Poroshenko, that the whole thing could come tumbling down. And so we're really sort of caught in a, a quagmire in which we need to keep pouring money down this uh, sinkhole that doesn't seem to have many prospects for becoming less corrupt and any more democratic. Uh, and then, of course, we haven't even talked about what's going on in Donbass and so mm -hmm, forth, uh, mm -hmm. which is another factor that makes it more difficult to engage. And we have to be honest, it has, it may, you know, the fact that there's still uh, a, what's the word I'm looking for, a, Slowly boiling war in um, the Donbass makes it less easier to engage in reform, even if uh, people in Kiev actually do want to engage in the reform. Mm -hmm. So you add the Donbass war onto the problem, and it's um, you know it's very formidable. Mm -hmm. Well, and there, well, it's hard to know what to to take from this, but there was a recent report. Uh, I can't remember if it was originally in the Daily Mail or where, but that. Uh, uh, Secretary of State Tillerson had uh, had a conversation. I believe it was with a uh, an Italian minister or something, where they were talking about Ukraine. And uh, and Tillerson said, "Well, why should why do the American taxpayers c care about Ukraine? Like, what difference does it make to them?" I right. Implying at least that um, you know that Ukraine isn't really a priority for us. Of course, right. you know there's you get contradictory statements coming out of the you know the the Trump administration on on issues like left and right. So it's hard to know what to take from that, but. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, um, any way you look at it, it's like uh, Ukraine isn't really, um, can't really look forward to too much, um, let's say, hope or, you know, chance for good things to happen. It looks like any way you look at it, there's a disaster, you know, coming in one way or another. Very, very possibly. And the comment made allegedly by Tillerson, I, I saw that quote, I haven't been able to... I didn't have a time to check to verify whether the source is reliable, but it seemed like yeah. it was. But it's, it points to a larger question, right? And that is, you know, the whole, you know, the logic behind supporting a, a potentially revolutionary set of forces in Ukraine, um, a people historically close to Russia, on Russia's border, on the background of which stands the certainty that 
if Ukraine turns west and becomes a member of the European Union, then they become a member of NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes a, a security, a key security question for Russia. On that background, doesn't make any sense, given that the American people, compared to the Russian people, care much less about Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And American leaders as a whole, and Russian leaders as a whole, have a completely different uh, scale in terms of interest when, when you're talking about Ukraine. For Russians, whether it's the elite or the people, Ukraine is important. You know, almost every family has someone close who lives in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Many families in Russia. Um, or friends who have uh, people, or, or they have friends in Ukraine, or they have relatives who have uh, relatives, friends who have relatives in Ukraine and so forth. Um, people used to go to vacation in Ukraine from Russia. Um, large numbers, I believe, the figure is something like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, three or four million Ukrainians who work in Russia and they send money back to Ukraine. Um, so these two countries are very deeply intertwined. Um, at least they were, you know, if, if you take Donbass and Crimea out of Ukraine, then it's not so much so, although there's still close ties between, um, you know, Russia and places like Kharkiv, Kharkov is the Russian school, Kharkiv is the Ukrainian school, or, and other places in Odessa, for example, and other places in Ukraine. Um, whereas Americans, you know, the only group that's interested in what's in Ukraine is the Ukrainian diaspora. Uh, and people like uh, uh, Yarishko, was the woman, I think it was her last name, was the Minister of Finances and used to work in the State Department. Yeah, so, but even but even there, like the the diaspora is pretty vocal. Um, yeah, and like I'm I'm Canadian, um, and we ha- we now have in Canada like a, a totally well a foreign minister that is totally um, you know seems to to be pretty much the mouthpiece of the Ukrainian diaspora in in Canada, and um, so there's that to consider. But then again, you know, Canada pretty much just tends to in my well, in my view, just go along with whatever the U.S. does for, for the most part when it comes to, to foreign policy decisions. So, um, but, you know, I yeah, just want to I think the Ukrainian diaspora is very well organized, and they've also, you know, penetrated the uh, U.S. government and the State Department. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in part, in part, they did that on the backs or in tandem with the Polish diaspora, mm-hmm. uh, which they had ties with, and other diasporas from the... Um, communist bloc countries during the Cold War, and so they're you know they're they're well they're well embedded into the the system, and the um, the Russians are not. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact, the Russians were more tied to the center of the Soviet regime um, in our minds, even though Russians suffered as much from the Soviet regime as any other ethnic group. But that's another story. Um, so uh, you know it's it's just, it's just it's a very serious problem. But again, Americans are not going to. I can't imagine a scenario in which, if there was nothing else going on uh, to support a war against Russia, um, that they would fight a, be willing to fight a war with Russia over Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It's just not in the cards. Well, the the whole involvement of the United States in the support for you know some of the parties that ended up being successful in the Maidan brings us to an issue um, that gets into this regime, regime change kind of whole scenario, revolutionary scenario that we've been talking about, and that seems to be a kind of um, a, a f- how, do we, how should I call it, like a foreign weaponization of 
regime change in other nations. So that's where, mm -hmm. you know, so we have um, these processes that can be completely um, homegrown, you know, strictly local. Um, this can be revolutions from below or, or just, you know, um, transitions or revolutions from above that are strictly, you know, dealing with the, the country in question. But now we have to add into this and add into the the equation the the possibility of um, foreign involvement. So that would be, and, and and I guess you could put that foreign involvement at any level in that structure too. So you could have foreign support for these grassroots movements, and where, like in Ukraine, you have people with legitimate grievances who are um, demonstrating and creating this revolutionary climate that is at least um, legitimate in the sense of. They they totally believe in what they're doing and want change, and then that gets hijacked by foreign elements. And when I say foreign, I mean you know foreign in the sense of really foreign, um, but actually elements, let's say Ukrainian elements that have more in common and their goals are more aligned with the uh, the foreigners, the Americans in this case, who then hijack that revolution and they just kind of exploit the the popular support that they get, and. We can see another example of that, I think, in what happened in Syria, where at, at the beginning of the the so-called Syrian revolution, there were um, it was uh, well there were real protests and they were they were peaceful protests, and then very quickly again we saw snipers, we saw violence break out, and then we saw the most extreme um, radical groups um, hijack this revolution, and if we're you know to believe. Um, some of the you know analysis of what was actually going on in the Syrian revolution from that very early point. Again, we find foreign support um, from numerous countries for all of these uh, like jihadi movements, and that would be well. And when it started out, of course, they they weren't openly um, you know self-declared jihadis or um, or even like Muslim Brotherhood. That was all. I mean, all that kind of stuff was was there, but wasn't really acknowledged primarily in the Western media. But right. you had foreign governments in the in the Arab world, in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and and Western governments supporting these violent groups right. and hoping for a kind of regime change, and right. yet and deep and destabilization, and yet as you mentioned um, just in you know five or ten minutes ago, a situation like that is unmanageable in a certain right. sense. So, on the one hand, well, on the one hand, it is manageable in a sense that you can get something out of it that you want, whether it's just destabilization or you, you use the movement to the extent that you can then um, put your guy in power. Yeah. Or, or the, there's the possibility that you just totally lose control of it. Right. And there's nothing you can do to, to control these people. Um, right. Maybe, do you have anything to say on the, the whole Syrian question and what's been going on in Syria and, let's say, you know, U.S. support for, for like, jihadist elements in Syria? Well, basically what happened in Syria, again, the beginning, as you said earlier, I mean, there were legitimate protests. Uh, amongst those people, there weren't many Democrats, right? The democratic ideology in Syria is <laughs> uh, not very strong, right? There aren't many people in Syria who have read Jefferson and... Uh, or Karl Popper, or whatever, right? Uh, the majority of the opposition was Muslim Brotherhood, and the Muslim Brotherhood elements from Syria have been supported by Turkey for decades. So um, that was really the core of the of the issue at the beginning. So what happened was the United States, and specifically Secretary of State Clinton, pushed for this policy was to have weapons shipped from Libya, and this is what the whole Benghazi affair was all about. Mm -hmm. uh, they were in the process of uh, negotiating 
um, more weapons being sent to the Syrian opposition through the port in Benghazi from Libya. And those weapons were going to elements uh, in the opposition, again, mostly Muslim Brotherhood, but with the jihadis beginning to glom on to the, uh, onto the movement because of uh, the proximity of um, jihadis in, in Iraq and, and the simple ease with which people can move around the globe nowadays. Um, and Secretary Clinton was was warned by the CIA and the other intelligence services that there were large numbers of jihadis moving in, and that the result of sending weapons to Syria would likely be um, the strengthening of, at the time, al-Qaeda, because at the time, the Islamic State uh, really didn't exist. There was the began as a wing of al-Qaeda and then broke off. Uh, and that they could gain control of the desert areas that overlap between Syria and Iraq. They were told specifically this by the... Uh, the U.S. intelligence services, and they went ahead anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem was is that you know you, the even though the the Muslim Brotherhood is again like Hezbollah, Tahrir, a group that basically supports nonviolent, certainly non-terrorist um, path to power, um, if possible, they have no qualms about allying with jihadists in order to defeat secularists, right? Mm-hmm. So you had a, a revolutionary coalition in Syria that was consisting of Muslim Brotherhood and increasingly jihadists, and then probably some socialist elements, maybe a handful of guys who read Jefferson, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, the weapons were going to this, uh, this front. And so there was no way to guarantee that these weapons weren't going to fall into the hands of jihadists, and so this is exactly what happened. Of course, then for people who are more um, have a more anti-American bent or are more into conspiracy theories, theories, this became the United States definitely supported the creation of the Islamic State. Of course, this is an overstatement. You know, where most people see conspiracies, in fact, they're just massive incompetence and people not wanting to uh, look the facts of the matter in the face or were willing to take huge, take huge risks when other people's lives are at stake, not your own. Um and that's generally people quite often who are in power. It doesn't matter who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is exactly what happened. And, um, you know, really, really it's a, it's, it's not really a classic case in the, on the model along, um, of Ukraine. There's some similar marks in that we were trying to use an opposition force, uh, to further our own, um, agenda and also, in a sense, to, I mean, there are always altruistic elements in the U.S. government who are supporting these things, too, and altruistic elements within uh, American society, right? I mean, Americans, uh, deep down, would like to see democracy everywhere. This is part of our political culture. The question mm-hmm. is, how do you achieve that? Do you achieve that by creating a model that everybody admires? And with the Internet now, they can just simply see what America is and what it stands for. And if they want to learn how to build a movement, they can find that on the Internet. They don't need to have us sending money over and operatives and so forth and so on. Uh, and let them fight their battles. Uh, and we should be simply prepared to defend ourselves and our allies mm-hmm. and stay out of other people's business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, this is the problem. Um, it doesn't seem to me to be beneficial to the United States to be engaging in all these uh, quasi-covert and outright covert uh, um, machinations in places where we simply we don't understand, you know, the, either the, you know, again, hard to tell what was in the mind of uh, the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton and so forth, you know, whether, again, they decided to just risk something on the hope that it would uh, work out. They thought they were on some kind of a roll after Libya. Uh, 
uh, they were really uh, outraged about um, uh, the nature of the Assad regime. Um, it could be a combination. Again, uh, these things are often multi-causal, so it could be a combination of you know altruistic uh, motives, uh, power motives, career motives, making a reputation yourself, getting ready for the 26th presidential campaign. You know, I was the one. If you're Hillary Clinton, I'm the one who organized the, the establishment of democracy in Egypt and Libya and Syria. Right? I mean, that, that would be a, that would be a great campaign slogan. Uh, yeah, if it worked, it, it, it didn't work out that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, the yeah, the uh, the that whole complex causality that you're talking about, I think, is you really drive that home with your book. So anybody who is uh, who you know is watching what's happening around the globe and they're seeing all these kind of revolutionary conditions, you know, across the Middle East, and you know, some of it kind of stirring up in in the West, and you know, especially that in Ukraine and you know attempts in Russia. It's it'd definitely be a good idea to check out your your books here and uh and definitely take a take a read of them because it really helps to see the just how complex the whole situation is that way you don't get caught into any sort of black and white thinking and you can dissect what's happening conspiracy theories as well mm -hmm. you know they have to avoid the i mean uh, it's not to say that there aren't some people engaging in conspiracies also but uh mm -hmm. their, their capacity to pull them off or to pull them off the way they think they can is uh greatly limited you know, basically, in that in, in that way, I'm a kind of a Tolstoyan. If you, you know, you've read War and Peace, right? And the whole idea of Tolstoy's War and Peace was right. These great the leaders think that they actually control the destinies of peoples and, the, and they control the course of history, but in fact, they just set things in motion that they can't simply control. And mm -hmm. quite, quite often, they just end up being destroyed by the things that they set in motion. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> well. Um do we want to go in any other directions? Or? I thought that was a really good ending quote there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well then, uh, Gordon, I think we'll end it there for today. So thanks again for being on. Uh, we had a great time. Yeah, thank you so talking much. Talking with you. Thank you very much, and I had a great time. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, well, we'll, we'll keep in touch. So uh, everyone, uh, stay tuned. We'll be back next week. And again, if you want to read Gordon's work, uh, you can go to gordonhan.com. That's H-A-H-N-Han. See you next week, everybody. <laughs>